This episode is brought to you by the members and donors of the Best of the Left podcast. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, This American Life, The Onion Radio News, The Tom Hartman Program, and Ring of Fire, with a bonus clip from The Daily Show. I told you, uh, I believe it was yesterday, um, that uh, uh, Chris Don might have been two days ago, Chris Don uh, put together legislation in the uh, Senate, which is actually tough and strong, real financial reform. And I was surprised by it. I was like, look at this. I mean, this is something. Now we're getting somewhere. Because I was very unhappy with the legislation coming out of the White House, the proposed legislation. And in the House, it got watered down and it got watered down. And I was like, look at this. At least Chris Dodd's really trying here, right? So the White House puts out a statement today that they uh, have a certain, quote, nervousness about Dodd's legislation. Yeah, yeah, they're nervous because it's actual reform. And they don't want actual reform. Geithner and Larry Summers are, appear to be 100% in cahoots with Wall Street and the top bankers in the country. That's all they ever talk to, the people that they talk to nonstop. You see, we've seen Geithner's records. All he does is he sits on the phone with Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, et cetera, on and on, Citigroup, every single day. What, what else would you like me to do, Master? What else would you like to do? Oh, you don't like Chris Dodd's belt. All right, the bankers told me they don't like it. We're nervous about it. Yeah, you should be nervous because it would do real reform so you don't blow up the system again and take all of our money and give it to the bankers. So when I saw this, I thought, one, I'm behind Chris Dodd's efforts 100%. Okay, now if he's got uh, the bankers nervous and that they've got the Treasury Department nervous, that means it's real, okay? Number two, the guy, the Treasury Department of, of Barack Obama is a disaster. It's a mess, okay? They don't represent us. They, they represent the bankers, the guys that they talk to. You think Guyton is on the phone all day with consumers? Hey, how's this affecting you? Oh, you're getting kicked out of your house? Oh, they just jacked up your credit card? Rates, oh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, on all this stuff? No. Now they're nervous about it. Um, here's Goolsby from uh, the White House. He's part of the Council of Economic Advisors to Obama. The administration view is that systemic institutions ought to be governed by the Fed. Now, what they want more and more power in the Fed, why the Fed doesn't really uh, bother the banks. The Fed is part of the banks, right? So they don't really regulate them. So the Obama White House proposal is give all the power to the Feds for regulation. Yeah, good luck with that. Dodd says, no, we do it in reverse. We take the power away from the Fed and give it to a real regulator, right? So White House doesn't like that. And he says, uh, the Dodd version is, uh, let's combine both of those and create some um, uh, new agency. I'm a little worried that to create the new agency would take a long time. And by the time you got to that, we're back into this world. Oh, you're concerned that Dodd's proposals take too long. My ass you are. No, you're concerned that Dodd's proposals are going to work. So, look, you know, people sometimes say, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys are liberals, or you guys, and, and MSNBC is liberal, or this or that. I analyze this stuff for what it is. I try my best, right? And, oh, you know, we got, <laughs> we're going to play this absurd clip in the postgame of somebody attacking us on YouTube saying all we ever do is support Obama administration. Does it sound like that right now? I don't trust Obama's Treasury Department at all. And furthermore, I think those financial reforms 
are the single most important issue right now facing the country. Because if we crash this economy again, we don't have the money to bail us out a second time. And it's not bailing us out anyway. They bailed out the banks. We still have 10% unemployment. This, in and of itself, can totally destroy the Obama presidency. Okay, He's going completely in the wrong direction. Do I sound like I'm supporting Obama? Oh, oh, what did Obama say? Oh, I really want to do it. Oh, his Treasury Department says they're nervous about Dodd's regulation. Then, okay, let's not reform Wall Street. No, you look at it and you make an honest analysis of what they're doing right and wrong. It seems like nobody on television does that anymore. Nobody in the media does it. Outside of a few people, I think Rachel Maddow does it. I think Oberman does it from time to time, certainly. Uh, but the right-wingers, all they want to do is attack him for stuff that isn't even true. And the amazing thing is they don't attack him on this. Why? Because they don't want him to reform Wall Street. The bankers pay their bills. So the right-wing are like, but let's not attack him on the one thing he's definitely doing wrong, because we, if we were in charge, we'd do it even more wrong. middle of a historic moment where millions of people were losing their homes and the numbers continue to rise. Last month there were 342,038 foreclosure filings, which is the highest that it's been so far in this recession. And this has left bankers in this situation that they never imagined was going to happen, where they are not entirely clear what to do and struggling along without any kind of map to handle this situation. They are apparently foreclosing on a lot more people than they need to. This next number I'm going to tell you is kind of astounding. Some economists, including mainstream academics and Wall Street guys, like a chief economist at Moody's, the Wall Street Ratings Agency, estimate that half, yes, half, of all the six million possible foreclosures that we're facing over the next three years don't need to happen. That even the banks would be better off. They would make more money. They would come out richer if they didn't foreclose. Reporter Chris Arnold explains how this could possibly be. To illustrate the paradox of this crisis, here's this couple. I met them at a foreclosure prevention event. The foreclosure mess is now so huge that these events are happening all over the country. My name is Alex Alisea. I'm a truck driver for Actel, a slab and marble company in Bridgeport. And um, I don't know what to do. This is my last alternative coming here. Every eight seconds, another house gets foreclosed on in the U.S. 
So banks and nonprofits hold big events like this. This one was at a hotel in Connecticut. Thousands of people showed up. There's about 100 housing counselors with laptop computers spread out across this big convention hall at little tables. All right, what I'm going to do right now, Alex, is that I'm going to pull your credit report. Alex isn't one of these people who bought a house that he couldn't afford. He says he's had steady work as a truck driver for 15 years, but he refinanced a couple of times, pulled out some money to fix up the house and pay some bills. Then his wife lost her job, and now they can't afford their monthly payments. On top of that, their house has lost value. They owe $230,000 on their home loan, and their house is only worth $180,000. It's not worth staying in the house. I mean, if they're gonna, if, they, if the house is only going to be worth eight, $180,000, and I'm going to be paying a mortgage of $230,000? Alex is underwater. Sometimes it's called upside down. You hear those terms a lot nowadays. And in fact, you'll hear them again before the story's over. Somewhere between 15 and 20% of all homeowners are in this situation. Situation. They owe more than their house is worth. Alex is so stressed out that he's taking medication and having trouble sleeping. He's the first person in his family to own a home, and now he's about to lose it. And here's what's so strange. Alex shouldn't be losing his house. Not out of some doe-eyed feeling of charity, not because hardworking people deserve homes, but for a simple economic reason. The bank doesn't want his house or whoever owns his mortgage. If they take his house back, they'd have to sell it for a big loss. It makes much more financial sense to cut him a deal. And this is the thing, this is the crazy thing about this whole foreclosure mess. In a lot of cases, it would be a win-win to cut people deals. That is to lower their payments and keep them in their homes. Then the lender would keep getting payments and it would have the added benefit of helping the housing market and possibly saving the economy, but it's not happening. The system isn't working right. In some ways, the system was designed to work on autopilot. That's Mark Pierce. He's North Carolina's deputy banking commissioner, and he says it's a huge problem. Mark Pierce has been meeting with executives at all the major banks and mortgage companies, and he's been getting the industry's own data on foreclosures. And what he's seeing is huge numbers of people in roughly the situation that Alex Alisay is in. They're facing foreclosure, even though they have jobs and could make some kind of reasonable payments. And it would be in everyone's interest just to rewrite their terms. But so far, that's not happening. Unfortunately, only 5 to 10 percent of the people that uh, probably need the help are actually getting something that's going to enable them to stay in their home. The other 90 to 95 percent of homeowners... Uh, the way the system has worked has simply been to push those homeowners into foreclosure. And rather than making any deal at all, uh, the, the system drives them to uh, uh, lose their home. There's so far today almost 3,000 calls have come in just to home retention. It's 3.30. <laughs> Danny Chapone is a manager at a call center run by a company named Aquin. And I came here to find out basically what the hell's going on. Why, when the industry is presented with, let's be honest, a rare case of an actual win-win, why is everybody still losing? Thank you. And the phone call may be recorded. This is an attempt to collect the debt. Any this is ground zero of the foreclosure crisis, right here. If you own a house and you send in your mortgage payment, it comes to a company like this one. They're called a loan servicer. You might not know that. Most people have never heard of a loan servicer. You think you're writing a check and it goes to the bank that loans you the money. But these days, there's the person who gave you the mortgage. Then often, they sold it to somebody else. And then they sold it to somebody else. And so the person who eventually gets your money, you have no idea. It turns out Aquin does. They're the middleman between you and the person that you owe. 
They're also the people that you call when you can't pay, or they'll call you. They're a debt collector. Exactamente. Nosotros, señor, lo que estamos It's a big room. Lots of cubicles, call center workers with headsets. Aquin's got 300 people taking calls, twice as many as two years ago. All day, they talk to people who are about to lose their homes. It's their job to figure out if it makes sense to modify their loans, lower their payments to avoid a foreclosure. Aquin agreed to talk to us probably because they're different than a lot of loan servicers in one important way. When you have trouble with your loan and call Aquin, they might actually help you out. They modify a lot of mortgages. They say when a borrower can't pay, 75% of the time they work out a deal that keeps them in their homes. In other words, they do loan modifications for three times as many people as they're foreclosing on. Marjorie Rotundo is a vice president who's in charge of the call center. She shows us Aquin's computer system. This is where they crunch the numbers that allow them to be nice to people. So here's the other financial information that we gather. You know, your monthly food, electric, cable. Basically, every borrower is in a database. And when they call asking for a modification, it's as simple as plugging in a few numbers. Aquin finds out what their income is and how much they owe. And then based on those two things, Aquin figures out what the homeowner can afford to pay. Then they try to rework the loan terms to match that number. They can reduce the interest, which is sometimes as high as 11 or 12 percent, to as low as 2 percent. And just like that, this can cut a person's monthly payment in half. Sometimes, and this is more rare, just 16% of the time, Aquan even reduces the actual amount that the person owes. Aquan can do all this because if they did nothing and allowed the foreclosure process to run its course, it would cost even more. Marjorie points to a computer screen that actually calculates how much money would be lost in a foreclosure for one of their loans. The software knows what the average repair costs are for foreclosed properties in any given neighborhood. It calculates the legal fees. Your broker fees, once you sell it, is going to be $6,300. The closing costs, $1,837. What's the repair? On the repairs, uh, $2,500 on a single family home. And then the legal fees and costs associated with taking, uh, completing a foreclosure, $275 in legal fees and $975 in legal costs. The argument for making a deal with the homeowner looks even better when you consider how much value the house has lost. That's huge. Say I'm the bank and a borrower owes me $400,000 on a mortgage, but now it turns out that the house is only worth half that. If I foreclose, I own a house that I can only sell for $200,000. I've lost at least half my money. So even if I cut the homeowner an incredible deal, I tell him forget about $50,000 or even $100,000 of that $400,000 that he owes me, I still come out ahead. I've lost less money. It's all there in the numbers on Marjorie's computer screen. I hit calculate, and in less than one second, it ran the net present values. When you see Marjorie's database, it looks very straightforward and mathematical, but out in the call center, it gets very messy and human and complicated pretty fast. My producer, Alex Bloomberg, and I talked to Danny Chapone and another manager, Doug Donegan. They say they hear all kinds of heartbreaking stories from people, a lost job or an unexpected medical cost, victims of a mortgage scam. Then there are the non-heartbreaking ones. We had somebody who was 
you know, had all the money in the world, the ability to pay, sent in their bank statements, were looking at it, and I think it was about eight cash withdrawals at the Hard Rock Casino down the road here in a three-day period. So this is somebody who's there. Casino ATM with the $10 fee. I mean, eight times eight. in three days. So you're there, you lose it, you go up to the money machine, you get more, you know, several times in one day, but you're not in the back of your head thinking, I'm going to have trouble making my mortgage payment, you know? So I mean, she, I think she told us, she's like, yeah, I have, an, I have a gambling problem. I'm going to get help. I mean, it was so, but that's not the norm. Most borrowers aren't like, oh, yeah, I have a gambling problem. I'm going to. But it is a prioritization of finances. We have people that tell us how desperate and, and how they have no money and no ability, and we look at their bank statements and they're going to, you know, P.F. Chang's and Ruby Tuesdays and, yeah, Starbucks, 7 Eleven, you know, like Danny's mentioned, you go to 7 Eleven a couple times a week, that adds up to $50 really fast, but nobody's thinking about that. They're not changing their habits to adjust to the redu- reduction in income. Instead of changing habits, they're changing paying. are hurting a lemonade stand's bottom line. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Lemonade stand owner-operator Jeremy Pruitt says the ever-present threat of water balloon attacks is driving away his customer base. The six-year-old went on to say that his entire business plan is under siege as no one wants to be caught in the water balloon crossfire. Trump and his friends are just jerks. He just started chucking water balloons at me one day and never stopped. Pruitt says he's even purchased a Max D super soaker to keep under the counter for protection. One company, just one loan servicer that's gotten religion about doing a lot of these workouts. The problem is there are dozens of other loan servicers. The biggest ones are owned by the big banks, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Chase, the same banks that are getting bailed out by the government right now. They all have big servicing divisions. 
We sat down with the top executives at Aquin, President Ron Ferris and Executive Vice President Paul Coaches in their modest conference room. They said those bigger companies, the big banks, it turns out they were just not set up to deal with this problem. But uh, let me give you a, a story here. Of, it happened actually right in this very room. And unfortunately, I think it's probably not appropriate for me to say the name, but one of the largest servicers and, and commercial banks in the country came down to visit and sat in this very room. Um, and this was probably back in, in about, you know, mid-2007, when clearly people were starting to see signs that trouble was ahead. And what they said to us was, the reason we're here today is because we know that delinquencies are rising. We know that, you know, we're we not going to be able to hire enough um, experienced collectors. And to compound that, we don't have any real loss mitigation type technology. We have just the basic core servicing technology that collects in a payment each month and sends out a statement. And, you know, it works really well when people make a payment every day. But we don't have all of that mathematical stuff that you're talking about, the models and whatever. And we're not sure what to do because we're, we're pretty sure that by the time we get it implemented, it'll be too late. So they sat here and we were literally like, you know, we're not sure what to do, and we want to talk to you about how could you possibly help us. That's the kind of situation that we were, were dealing with. And, and I'm talking about one of the largest you know, banks in the world sat here in this room and told us that story. Yeah, I mean, it, was that surprising for you to hear that? I mean, here you are servicing a few hundred thousand loans, one of the largest banks in the country that's dealing with millions of loans at a time when this foreclosure crisis is mounting, and they're basically saying, well, if everybody pays on time, everything's great, but we really don't have the systems in place to deal with it if people stop paying. It was eye-opening to hear them actually, you know, acknowledge it and say it and say that they, they have a problem and they weren't sure what to do. Aquin, on the other hand, has been doing this for a while, for their entire history. They've specialized in so-called distressed debt, which means that they're the industry's problem loan guys. They were like the messed up loan foreclosure specialists. Before this crisis, that was a tiny part of the market. Now it is the market. Vice President Paul Kocha says he was at a meeting in Washington recently. The industry was batting around the notion of a celebrity campaign. This was their big idea, to get celebrities to go on TV and tell people at risk of foreclosure to call up their lenders and ask about loan workouts. And this is very well attended, all the usual suspects, all the, all the big banks. And there was one uh, person who, on behalf of uh, you know a very large bank, almost sort of in a... In a an excited sort of utterance just blurted out and said, well, you can't do that. If you're successful in drumming up all this, you know, interest on the part of the, the homeowners who need help, we won't be able to handle the volume. The level of, of the market disruption just caught many uh, servicers by surprise. And indeed, we're still getting our systems in order in order to uh, be able to handle the massive levels of defaults. That's Rod Alba, the vice president for mortgage finance at the American Bankers Association, which represents banks around the country. I called him up, and he basically agrees with all of this, that a lot more loan modifications would make good business sense. But still, two years into this mess, many big loan servicers haven't figured out how to make that happen. 
And there are a lot of other reasons that the big banks, which are also the biggest loan servicers, aren't modifying more mortgages. Because of the way accounting rules work, if they do a loan modification, they basically rewrite the terms of the loan, which means that then they have to admit that they have a problem on their hands. And if I engage in an actual modification, now I have a distressed asset. And if I have a distressed asset, then that gives me a knock to the capital base. That is proving to be one of the problems in this area. It's a problem because the bank has to take a short-term loss. If they don't modify the loan and put the house into foreclosure, they still take a loss, probably a bigger loss, but it might be as much as a year under accounting rules before that loss shows up on their books. They still lose money, but they don't lose it now. And it's now that the banks are worried about. And then there are those conflicts of interest. Some top people in the mortgage business think those are a big problem. It closely resembles, in some ways, the uh, fox guarding the hen house. This is Scott Simon. He's not the NPR host, and he's not a consumer advocate or an anti-bank activist. He's a big-time money guy. He's a managing director at PIMCO. It's an investment firm that holds more than $500 billion worth of home mortgages in the form of mortgage-backed securities. Simon manages all of that. He says often the banks are servicing loans that are owned by investors like him, And the banks are supposed to make sure that the investors get paid. And they're supposed to decide if a loan modification makes good business sense. Simon thinks they should be making more loan modifications, but he believes that the banks are wearing too many hats and they can't do that job right. So take an example. You have a $300,000 house that's only worth $260,000, and it might make all the sense in the world to modify that loan. Good for the investor, good for the homeowner. But it turns out, that the bank that services the loan has also lent the person $25,000 on a home equity line of credit. A home equity line of credit is, of course, a second mortgage, where you borrow another, say, $25,000 to redo your kitchen, buy a car, or just pay off your credit cards with your house as collateral. The problem becomes that the bank has much more interest in their $25,000 line of credit than helping the homeowner or the investor in this case. Simon says legally, it can be tough to modify your mortgage without basically wiping out your home equity loan. And some of the nation's biggest banks are each on the hook for more than $100 billion of those little home equity loans. And so he says the bank has a big incentive to avoid doing a modification. So it doesn't happen. Everybody is trying to protect their own self-interest. And ultimately, the conflicts keep it from happening. The servicers enable this to occur or can essentially veto this from occurring. And so what's in their interest really is dominating the day. You just look at it and say, hey, why can't we just fix this? We talked to several of the biggest banks, but none of them would let us come do interviews at their loan servicing operations. In prepared statements, the banks point to all the loan adjustments that they are making right now. And these are on the rise, and most loan modifications now do result in lower monthly payments. But as Mark Pierce, the deputy banking regulator, said earlier, only one in 10 of the people who need loan modifications are getting them. And when the banks and big loan servicers do modify loans, regulators say that too often they're not taking the dramatic steps that actually keep people in their houses, the things that Aquin does slashing interest rates or lowering the overall amount of the loans. And because the big banks don't take those steps, 46% of the modified loans have ended up in trouble again. 
Of course, the scale of this problem is just by its very nature overwhelming. And you can see that at the call center at Aquan. I'm not saying that you haven't been trying, but the last payment that we received that's been applied to your account was in October of 08. Call center worker Tammy White has been going around and around trying to do something that sounds like it should be pretty simple. Get a copy of an old tax return from a homeowner who's looking to get her payments lowered. Okay, I didn't say it was, I didn't receive it. I said it wasn't signed. And that could have been what got you in the situation that you're in today. Thank you. Bye bye. Oh. Can we talk about that conversation? Uh, yeah. Um, What's the story there? She was asking why we need all of this because she didn't have to provide any of it when she got her loan, and I was trying to explain to her that's why she's probably in this bad situation. So this conversation takes half an hour to try to get one homeowner to sign and mail in one document. This is the conversation that has to happen millions of times if we're going to sort all this out. That's not an easy thing. But the people here at Aquin say it's definitely doable. The Obama administration has a new plan to try to get a lot more loan modifications happening. But for now, we're still in the middle of this giant foreclosure mess. People are losing their houses at a faster rate every month. Another one every eight seconds. should be signing up for all these Tea Party gigs and actually showing up. Not to fight with the teabaggers and not to play, you know, billionaires for wealth care and, 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 you know, show up, although I think that's really cool, you know, show up in the, in the, the tuxedo with the champagne and say, you know, I'm a CEO of a health insurance company. Thanks so much for looking out for my $100 million a year compensation. Uh, not, not to do that, but rather to show up with signs that actually probably most of the teabaggers would agree with. It's, you know, stop the buying of Congress. Stop corporations from giving money to members of to, to senators and, and, and representatives, those kinds of things. Um, reduce inequality in America. Now, I realize that sounds like that's not a bumper sticker, but there, there has to be a variety of ways to say that. So, number one, maybe we should be using the teabagger movement. You know, for years I've advocating the, I've advocated that progressives should be infiltrating the Democratic Party and taking it over. And in many places we have, but nothing like the conservatives have taken over the Republican Party. And the difference between progressives and conservatives, the, the, you know, the progressives that I'm suggesting – we are and we should take over the Democratic Party and the conservatives who have taken over the, the Republican Party is that the conservatives who have taken over the Republican Party are not with most Americans. 
They want women who get abortions to go to prison. They want the taxes to be lower on corporations and on rich people. I mean, you know, this is the these are the agendas of the conservatives. They, you know, they they want gays to stay in the closet and keep their mouths shut. They want uh, African Americans not to have the the protection of of hate crime legislation or gays for that anybody. I mean, they don't want any. They don't. They definitely don't want there to be free college education. I mean, you know, just where the conservatives are at. The modern-day conservatives, there's just a tiny fringe of America that's there. But the vast majority of America, well over, well over 50 percent, in most cases over 60, 70, 80 percent of Americans, if you said, should college be free in the United States for anybody who can qualify, they'd say yes. If you say, should everybody in America have full health insurance and it should be paid for out of income taxes, most Americans say yes. Single-payer health care system, you know, like France has. If you say, should Social Security be strengthened and be available to everybody? Yes. Should the retirement age for Social Security be brought down to 60 to tighten the labor market and increase wages? Yes. Should people have the right to unionize? The majority of Americans will say yes. I mean, where progressives are at is where America is at. And the way that the conservatives have been able to hold on to their power is by using fear and lies. And this is the consequence of the conservative grip on the United States over the last 30 years since Ronald Reagan came to power. And this is from, these are all these statistics are from the Equality Trust. The website is equalitytrust.co.uk.co.uk. It's, it's an organization put together by James Wilkinson, who is the author of a book on inequality, which last month was my, or maybe the year, month before, was my BuzzFlash Book of the Month. And has a new book, which will be out in the United States, I think next month it's coming out, called The Spirit Level, which is basically a modern rewrite of his last book on inequality. But let's just look at what happens when societies are unequal. That is to say, when the rich are richer and the poor are poorer and the middle class gets smaller. And the way that they measured this is by looking at the, the ratio, the difference, the spread between the wealth held by or the income derived you know, by the top 20% versus the bottom 20%, what's known as the top versus the bottom quintile, the top versus the bottom fifths of society. And when that's spread in societies like Japan, Norway, Costa Rica, it's about 4 to 1. In the United States right now, it's over 11 to 1. In the United Kingdom, it's in the neighborhood of 10 to 1. The U.S. and the U.K. are two of the three most, Singapore is the third, uh, and Portugal is the fourth. They're two of the most unequal societies in the world. And the reason why is very simple, because of Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher's policies. Because before Reagan and before Thatcher, this was not the case. So what happens when a society is wildly unequal? These, as I said, statistics from the Equality Trust, uh, over 170 studies on income inequality in relation to various aspects of health, including life expectancy, infant mortality, low birth weight, self-rated health, have repeatedly shown it to be worse in unequal societies. And they've got a graph over there at their website. The least, the most equal society is Japan at, at around four to one. And they also have the lowest rate of infant mortality in the world, the best outcomes for children born. The most unequal society in the world, the United States. What country has the worst outcome for children? The, the highest infant mortality rate? The United States. 
So, you know, uh, this is of the major industrialized countries. Mental health. Different societies have very different levels of mental illness. In some countries, only 5 to 10% of the adult population are mentally ill. For example, Japan, Germany, um, Spain, Italy, Belgium, all countries that have low levels of inequality. The countries that are the most unequal, Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, New Zealand, have the highest levels of, ment- of mental health, health problems. Drug abuse. The USA, number one in the world in drug abuse, number one in the world in inequality. Japan at the bottom of the list in drug abuse and at the bottom of the list in inequality, along with Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and Belgium. I think she's mad at me. I don't know why. Maybe because I made her cry. When I told her I was down, she only likes me when I'm As a gentleman, I do everything I can to be of my abiding kind of energy. Get stimulating all the while, but when she comes around, I don't know why. I always go to far and end up puking on the bathroom door. Oh my, she only likes me when I'm high. The author John Perkins is no stranger to economic scandals. After all. He started his career as an economic hitman. We would help corporations force smaller nations to go along with their economic scams so CEOs could get a larger bonus every year. That's why he wasn't surprised when our financial system completely melted down. Joining me now to talk about how all this happened is John Perkins, author of the new book, Hoodwinked. John, I remember a day when government used to be in charge of government. When I read your book, Hoodwinked, and actually when I read your first book, I, you know, it's just it's it's very clear that government is not in charge of government. Corporate corporate America is actually international corporations are pretty much in charge, aren't they? I agree totally, Mike. Yes, we've we've arrived at a world today that's it's kind of like when the city states became nations, except now the nations and the presidents of these nations have pretty much lost their power. The big corporations and and the people who run them are calling the shots. You know, your your first book, well, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I know it was just it was a bestseller. Same reason that this is such an interesting book. It is that that we we kind of we kind of hear these theories out there that you know government really isn't in charge of what's going on day to day and unfortunately the people who deliver those messages like the Pat Roberts and people like that uh, they, they they discredit the truth of it you understand what i'm saying in other words we we hear a guy like that go on and talk about the new world order and we say oh my god this is you know this is some freak out there talking about an illuminati of sorts but the truth is, that's not what you're saying here. You're saying if you follow the economic money, on, I mean, just follow the money. And when you follow right. the money on these stories, it's very evident uh, what happens. Lead, lead us through this a little bit. Okay, we find, we find zinc in South Africa. What, what, what does corporate America do with that zinc in South Africa? Well, first of all, we, we, we arrange a huge loan uh, to South Africa from the World Bank or one of its sisters, uh, to probably build a big power plant and highways and ports that will allow the companies to get to the zinc and, and, and mine it and transport it. Uh, the loan goes to the country, but the majority of the people of the country don't benefit at all. 
our big corporations who, who build the roads, build the power plants, and then benefit from them, as well as a few wealthy people in the country where the loan's gone, in this case we're saying South Africa, uh, they benefit. But the majority of the people don't get any benefits out of this at all, and yet they end up holding a huge debt that they can't repay at some point. When we go back and say, listen, you know, you can't pay your debt, so give us a pound of flesh. Sell your zinc to us at even a cheaper price. Or vote with us on the next critical United Nations vote or send troops in support of ours to Iraq or Afghanistan. And in the few cases where we find leaders that do not go along with this, and I talk in my books about how that happened to me with Jaime Roldos, the elected president, democratically elected president of Ecuador, and Omar Torrijos of Panama. They, they would not go along with this scheme. They wouldn't allow me to corrupt them. Uh, and in those cases, the jackals go in and either overthrow or assassinate the leaders. Both Roldos and Torrijos were assassinated because they wouldn't go along with us economic hitmen. And in a few instances where, where, where that fails, too, like with uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, then, then we send the army in. Yeah, okay, so it's always that gotcha moment. The gotcha moment is we're here to help you. Gee, don't you want our money? Let us help you build an infrastructure to extract the zinc. In fact, you're building the, you're building the extraction system for corporate America and, 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 or the, whatever the multinational corporation is. The people that are supposed to benefit by that, maybe tax investment, whatever you want to call it, investment into jobs, they don't really benefit. And, and no. so, so the, the the ending to it is, after you were an economic hitman. I mean, the the first book really lays this out really well, where you talk about the fact. Look, my job was simple. It, it, you know, it was something that you know you look at it on paper. I was just I was the guy that went in the, to these third world banana republics and extracted everything I could get by way of this same process you just described. Is that an accurate? Uh, that's statement? right. Okay. Yeah, that, that's right. I did that and. You know, I think that put me in kind of a unique position now to sort of understand this this awful economic tsunami meltdown that we're that we're experiencing today, which directly comes out of that system. And that's why I wrote Hoodwink because there were all these books coming out about sort of the triage, you know, the band-aids we had to put over the little wounds on us and to raise up the banks or Wall Street and so on and so forth. Right. And to a certain degree, we need band-aids because we're hemorrhaging. But what we really got to do is look at the the underlying virus that's causing this terrible problem. And it's something I call predatory capitalism, which has been around between 30 and 40 years. And we need to change that. We need to ferret out that predatory capitalism and move into a new epoch. Let's talk about how predatory it really is. I mean, we, you talk about the, the 10,000 foot, but let's be specific. Uh, you know, there's specific cases about Torrijos in Panama or Roldos in uh, Ecuador, where actually when the economic hitman process didn't work, they send in the next the next bunch, and that is the people that go in and take these people out. That basically assassinated these people. When that doesn't work, then, as you point out in your book and just as you're describing here, we then bring in the U.S. military, which is the Iraq scenario. Right. So we're, what do we do about that? I mean, you know, the person listening to this says, well, you know, good God, that's that's more than, you know, how do I compete with Boeing and how do I compete uh, with Halliburton? How do I do that? And, and, and that's the question anybody has, anybody who's re reasonably uh, has a sense of social responsibility. They want to say, what is it I can do? 
Well, I, and I, 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 I spend a good share of Hoodwink talking about basically five different areas that we can all participate in to turn this thing around. And it, but in every case, it's, it's, it's we the people understanding and taking some responsibility. One of those areas is to recognize that, that, the, that the marketplace is essentially democratic. And whenever we buy something or choose not to, we're casting a vote. These big corporations that are calling the shops don't exist unless we buy the goods and services. And in the, over the last years, a lot of big corporations have folded or had to be bought out by others. We've experienced that. We have power over these corporations, and we must realize it and, and, and execute that power. Have you actually – I mean, I, I see your vision there, John. I mean, are there actually instances? I mean, I can name a couple, I suppose. I mean, I see that you know Nike steps for Nike steps forward and say, "Look, we're not going to be part of this thing you're doing with the Chamber of Commerce against uh, uh, climate change." Uh, Apple does the same thing. I mean, we see we see some yeah. positive movement, and along with about ten other corporations, where they said to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, "Look, you guys are freaks. You know, you're right. nuts. You're freaks. You're lying to the American public. You're lying to the world. We don't want to be part of that." But it's it's tougher for the guy out there who's living day to day, and he has to you know go to where is the most convenient place for him. It's probably going to be Walmart, buy groceries, buy clothes. And it's hard for him to make that choice to say, look, I'm, I don't know, I'm not going to buy this product because of, you know, connections to, uh, to something that we feel is unscrupulous. Most of the time they don't even know the backstory. Well, I, I think yeah, but it behooves us to get better educated. I think that's part of it is taking on that responsibility and not just trying to get better educated about political candidates when they come up. But let's face it. You know, the political system, we like to say it's one person, one vote, but in fact, it's one dollar, one vote. Sometimes when this place gets kind of all empty, the sound of the perfect with the light. Think about the loveless fascination under the Milky Way tonight. U.S.-owned General Motors produces a Pelosi-Boehner hatchback. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The recent takeover of the General Motors Corporation by the federal government yielded big results today with the unveiling of a new bipartisan hatchback co-designed by congressional leaders Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner. Speaker Pelosi praised the new vehicle, calling it proof positive that Democrats and Republicans can indeed work together toward a common goal. The Pelosi-Boehner hatchback is a car that transcends all political boundaries and comes in over three colors. The new car features two steering wheels, second and fifth gears, and a passenger side shrapnel bag. Well, Redland for the Onion Radio
John, let me ask you, the corporations that we're talking about that really have replaced government, I, I don't know how else you put it. <laughs> There's no other description. They they have replaced government. I mean, you, the same people running government run the major mega corporations, and it's like this, this door that swings just circle door, you know, corporate to government, government to corporate. There are no national boundaries to this, are there? I mean, it's you, you have a great line in there where you, you describe it almost as, as as clouds just drifting around the world, just circling the globe, waiting waiting for their opportunity. It's exactly the case that today that you know we've we've gone from city states becoming nations and and some nations becoming extremely powerful like the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, the United States to now a situation where nations aren't powerful, aren't that powerful. The big corporations are calling the shots all over the world. You know whether whether they're striking deals in China or Taiwan or in Israel and the Arab nations, they don't discriminate. They do, they go wherever. Uh, they find markets and resources that they covet, and they basically take over. But we do have to remember we have a lot of power over these corporations. We need to exercise that power. And this business of consumer responsibility is just one of five areas I talk about in Hoodwink where we need to exercise power. One of the other ones is, you know, we really – for 100 years in this country, after it was first became the United States, no corporation would get a charter unless it could prove that it was serving the public interest. Hmm. The charter was up for renewal about every 10 years in general, and he didn't get a renewal unless you proved that you had served the public interest. I think, you know, today the guiding light for corporations, unfortunately, and this just happened after I got out of business school in the late 60s. Before then, we thought CEOs had a fiduciary responsibility to take good care of their communities, their employees, their customers, and their suppliers. But all this changed in the 70s and particularly in the 80s and ever since, corporations define their goal as being solely to maximize profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. We need to implement some rules and regulations that set the boundaries on that and say, go ahead and make profits, but only while creating a sustainable, just, and peaceful world. Well, you and hit, yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead, John. Well, let's you and I, Mike, and all your listeners only buy from companies that make a commitment to doing that. And let's face it, none of them are going to be perfect to begin with, but they can make that commitment. And let's let them know and send them emails. I'm buying from you because you're making this commitment, or I'm not buying from you because you haven't made easy, that commitment. Easy to do with uh, the Internet age, isn't it? It is. It is, and it works. You know, we got rid of apartheid in South Africa because we boycotted companies that supported it. Recently, we've, we've gotten rid of trans fats in a lot of our foods, and we've gotten uh, antibiotics out of chickens and so on and so forth because we've demanded it of these companies. And now we got to ratchet this up a notch and, and, and demand that, that they change their basic guiding principle. Uh, let me ask you something. You have uh, just, just such a remarkable history. You've actually seen uh, third worlds implode the same way America imploded uh, this this last couple of years, haven't you? I mean, you've seen the system where uh, the, where you have the AIGs of another country or city group or Bank of America failing, and, and then that whole cascade of terrible events that followed. This isn't the first time you've seen that, is it, in America? I've seen it many times. And in fact, I was involved in making it happen back in the 70s when I was an economic hit man. And 
and it's it's part of why you know Random House asked me to write this book because they say, listen, you 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 you've seen this, you've been part of it, you understand it, and and you understand the the the, the cancer beneath it, the virus down deep in that we've got to gut out, we've got to get that out, we've got to cut it out, and move into a a, a new era, a new type of of, uh, of economy. We we must do this if we you know if we want to see our children and grandchildren grow up in a world that any of us would want to grow up in. You know, uh, John, what's 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 pleasing to anybody who understands what kind of this mission that you've been on for a long time to, to try to get this word out, what they appreciate is it's kind of like you're picking up where Howard Zinn left off. I mean, he's, he's not left off. Howard Zinn's still with us, thank God, and he's going to be hopefully thank a God. long time. Yeah. But, but it is that Howard Zinn message that we have to understand the underpinnings of what, how, of what keeps America moving day to day or the world moving day to day. And it's those underpinnings that you're talking about that I think are so that I think are so important. Howard Zinn was a professor of mine when I was at Boston University. Wow. Never met him. I was in a lecture class that I think had about 400 students, and I never met Howard. But he he, he inspired me deeply. After I wrote Confessions, I, I, he got in touch with me, and and we met, and we we met. We've been we've been emailing each other ever since. And whenever I'm in Boston, I try to get together with Howard. He's become a good friend and supporter. It was interesting to me. He told me that when he first read the, the Confessions, and we finished it, he slammed it down on the table and said, "Damn it, you know this kid." was a student of mine didn't listen to anything I said. <laughs> but he told, me, he told me, Mike, that he read it a second time that summer. He liked the book. He read it a second time. The second time, he slammed it down the table and said, thank God he didn't listen to anything I had to say because now he can tell the story from an insider's point yeah. of view. Yeah, interesting thing. Well, look, I want to I ask you, we, we have a short memory in America. That's one, that's one problem. We, we, we forget, uh, you know, when the good, when good news comes, it's almost like you described Pavlov's dog. We're going through this horrendous uh, payback for the eight years of, you know, Republican crazy. And now now we're almost going to forget that and we're going to let it happen again. That's something you're always afraid of in any of your discussions. It is, and I think the message of Obama right now, you know, is a lot of people are saying they're very disappointed in the ones who voted for him. And I think the real message here is to understand that presidents don't have that much power. We have power. Corporations have power, and we have the power of the corporations. I'm often reminded of what Franklin Roosevelt said after he met. He he met with a bunch of union leaders in the 1930s, and at the end he said to them, uh, listen, I think you, you know I agree with you. Now go out there and force me to do the right thing. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We have to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, 
class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Bernie, I know you love these FDR clips, and you invoked him just before the break. I've, I've got this is from his 1936 speech, and here's uh, probably the, the uh, my favorite piece for you. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. That led to a four-and-a-half-minute standing ovation, Bernie. <laughs> and you know what that also led to, interestingly enough, Tom, that was 1936? Yes, uh, October 31st. the election results? What were the election results? Oh, he, it was a landslide. 40, I believe it was 46 states to two. Yeah, it was an That's absolute right. landslide, the election of 36. That was a week before the election. All right, and, and, and I'm glad you... you, you you, uh, you you played that clip because what Roosevelt was able to do is explain to the American people, A, what was happening and who was responsible right. for what was happening. And at the end of the day, there are a lot more working people, middle class people who are struggling than there are wealthy people who make campaign contributions. And I wish that we, President Obama was stronger in, in doing precisely what a Roosevelt uh, did and I think if he did that, if we could rally the people, if we could bring the people together, I think we could push through a very strong progressive agenda. Yep. So thank you for playing. That. You're welcome. Government by organized money is more dangerous than government by organized mob. You think it was really true then? <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's really. true now. Thanks for listening, and I uh, hope everyone in America had a good Thanksgiving this past week, and uh, and I hope everyone else had a good Thursday. I also hope that you didn't miss the show too much. I took a break for this this weekend. Normally, there would have been a show over the weekend, as you know. And, you know, frankly, the, the last week when I was producing the show, you may have noticed I didn't mention I'd be taking the day off, because at the time, I didn't realize I was going to. And then I realized, what are you, a sucker? You're going to work? during your vacation time when you got you know the the girlfriend and the friends hanging out and trying to have a good time and relax what, what i'm gonna work that's nuts so uh sorry i didn't warn you but i know you all understand so the show is is back but of course we're not going to be on regular schedule for long december as i have warned in the past is going to be hectic to catch everyone up i do have a real job i work for a global warming nonprofit here in the dc region and through that job, I will be attending the Copenhagen Climate Conference in December. So that's putting you know a huge dent in the podcasting schedule. But I know you know besides the fact that it's the holiday time and I should be taking time off anyways, and you'd all be understanding of that. Of course, attending and reporting on the climate conference is uh, is something I have no doubt you'll forgive me for uh, taking some time off from the podcast. So. Here's the plan. I, I'm I'm making a public promise for 
four episodes this month. It's it's half the normal eight, but I think it's perfectly reasonable. And uh, who really wants to pay much attention to politics uh, during the holiday season, anyways? That that's my thought. So so the promise is uh, besides this show, there will be one uh, this weekend and next Wednesday as normal, and then I'll be in Europe, not able to work on it at all, and then I'll come back before the end of the month and post at least one, at least on the 30th. I'm not saying there's definitely not going to be more than four. I'm just saying there won't be less. So I appreciate your patience uh, during my absence, but uh, no worries. The show's coming back the beginning of next year at the very latest, full force. Okay, so let's get through this stuff a little bit. Uh, Actually, kind of a lot of news popped up during my one-show absence, so let's get through it. First of all, the Best of Left iPhone application, uh, iPhone and iPod Touch application, has been updated. And it's a totally awesome update. Um, I didn't even know it was coming. I updated my applications, and my show popped up. I thought, hey, you know, I I know those guys. And so I downloaded and checked it out. It's totally awesome. Uh, the, the The big improvements are that you can now select a show from, you know, the, you get the whole feed delivered right in the application so the entire archives of the show are at your fingertips and now you have the opportunity to download individual episodes instead of having to stream them so you can listen to them offline so to speak which i know is that's got to be like the dream feature edition for ipod touch users you know i i know what you're thinking so yes that is how it works you download uh, whatever shows you want listen to them to them at a later time it's perfect and also just uh, setting episodes as favorites so you can easily find them later. And then they, they changed the way it looks a little bit, cleaned it up. It looks very nice. I'm very excited about it. And then, of course, as always, I have to mention the bonus content for today is uh, the you know re- mildly famous interview uh, with Joe Biden that he, at least half of the interview with Joe Biden that he did on The Daily Show talking about the economic recovery and obviously the White House position on all of that. So users of the app can get that right now. Okay, now just a couple more things. Of course, uh, the podcast awards are over. Thank goodness. Uh, Don't have to talk about that ever again until next year when we'll do it all over again. The awards ceremony is taking place for anyone who's interested in watching it live, taking place on podcastawards.com on December 13th at, I don't know, like one or two in the morning Copenhagen time. So for those of you who will be in Copenhagen with me, uh, that's that's when it happens. Uh, otherwise known as December 12th, 8 p.m. Eastern. So you definitely want to tune in there, watch the Young Turks win the political category, and, you know, in all likelihood, uh, This American Life win for Best Produce. Now, for those of you who are going through podcast awards voting withdrawals, lucky for you, it's a new month, and it's time to get started again at Podcast Alley. This is, of course, the voting system that resets every month and generates a kind of a international or, you know, mostly uh, United States top 10 list of podcasts in the entire country or world. So naturally, uh, voting has started again, and let's go do it. Let's get back up to the top 10 where we uh, used to sit comfortably. We took a couple of months off, you know, for the podcast awards, but... Let's get it going again. Obviously, there's no reason at all we shouldn't be at the top 10. 
but it only happens if you actually go vote. If you think everyone else is going to do it, then everyone else thinks the same thing, and then no one actually does it, and uh, it's just an embarrassment. So head over to podcastawards.com, vote for Best of the Left, or uh, there's a link right on our website that makes it really easy for you. So that was it. That was all the news. Thanks for sticking with me. I just want to thank a couple of members. Uh, John R. signed up on September 7th, and Timothy T. signed up October 13th. Huge thanks to them and, of course, all of the members who keep the show going. Um, for any new listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, membership program is absolutely what keeps this show going. Uh, I've managed to actually make this podcast a little bit of a part-time job. And, you know, if, if the members and donors weren't kicking in, you know, even if it's just a five bucks a month, it all really adds up and, and allows me to do this and put in the time that's required to make the show. So, of course, I thank you guys every single episode because I couldn't do it without you. So that is it for today. As I just say, so you can support the show by becoming a member. Also, just tell, you know, five or all of your friends about it. Uh, if you can't become a member, maybe one of them can. And uh, you have no idea what kind of an impact you can have. And besides, you, your friends will like you better once you've suggested this show to them because it'll become their favorite show just the way it's your favorite show and so on. It's also a huge help. Uh, anyone who wants to leave a five-star review in iTunes for not only the podcast, but also the application, especially now that it's been updated, it's even better, m even more deserving of a five-star rating. So go ahead and check out both of those and uh, help spread the word to those searching the iTunes store for new stuff. You can also follow the show between shows, Twitter and Facebook at twitter.com slash best of the left and facebook.com slash best of the left and if you're interested in following what i'm doing in copenhagen we will actually be there doing audio and video dispatches some of which who knows no plans are solid but some of which may end up on this show but every single day i will be there with my boss and we will be doing interviews and all sorts of great stuff all on behalf of his radio show, Earthbeat Radio. So if you're interested in that, check out all the details at earthbeatradio.org. We will be Twittering and Facebooking and all of those things through the Earthbeat accounts, as well as blogging at earthbeatradio.org and so forth. And check out all the great stuff we do. You know, all the audio and all the video you see that pops up on any of those sources is done by me. Not that it's going to be as good as this show, but what is. And finally, links to the music and the sources used in this and every episode are found in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, with some notable exceptions. Thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.